have a story you're bursting to tell the world. Are you sick of being rejected by the publishing establishment? Do you want to inject a little punk rock DIY ethos into your indie author career? Join me, best-selling indie author Steph Green, for Rage Against the Manuscript, where we explore how to tell your story, find your readers, and build a badass author brand. For more info, check out our website at www.rageagainstthemanuscript.com. Hey writers, it's Steph here and welcome to another episode of the How to Rock Self-Publishing podcast. Today we're going to be talking all about world building. What is it? Why we need to do it? You know, what are some tips for a really great, really engaging world building? And, you know, what are some of the mistakes that we all, including me, commonly make when we're, we're world building for our fiction? So I'm going to crack right into it without further ado, um, and we just, you know, so I guess first of all we'll just define what world building is. So kind of the way it sounds, world building is building the world within which your story takes place. So world building is all the stuff that is not plot and that is not character. So it's setting, it's transportation, it's the rules that govern the world, it's the magical system, you know, if there is one, it's, you know, the geography, it's all of these things. That's the world building. And as an author, you have to build that world. So you have to put all of these details together in a way that makes the, fe- the world feel realistic and you know exciting and interesting for the reader. So my first tip, and I think it's probably one of the most, 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 most important things that we're going to talk about today, is that you start your world building from your story hook. Now, what is your story hook? We have talked about this in the previous episodes about skeleton drafting. The story hook is the idea that sparks your story in the first place. And in the hook, so a really good story hook includes this idea that sparks the story. Uh, so, you know, so for example, um, let's say, uh, so one of my books, um, the Nevermore Bookshop Mystery Series, the hook was, you know, what if... Um, our heroine worked in a bookshop where uh, literary, famous literary characters came to life. So that was the idea that sparked the story. Um, so that's part of the hook. Um, but the other parts of the hook is we need a sense of, of our main character. So, you know, you need, so even if just, if you just know, the only thing you know about them is their gender or something like that. So the hook needs a character. So we've got that character in that hook. And then the other thing a hook needs is it needs some sense of conflict. Um, so, you know, what is the conflict going to be in the story? So bookshop where literary characters come to life, that's a statement. It's There's no actual inherent conflict in that. But when I start to say it's a murder mystery... Uh, and our heroine is going to be accused of the murder of her best friend, and you know everyone in the bookshop has to work together to solve the mystery. Then suddenly, I have a conflict, and that is the start of a story. And within this hook that I've created, I also can start seeing where the world building is going to begin. So I've got this bookshop where literary characters come to life. So my world building has to start there, in the bookshop. 
what is the bookshop? Where's the bookshop located? Um, how does the bookshop bring literary characters to life? What does the bookshop look like? What is it like for the, the heroines to navigate it and the heroes to navigate in the bookshop? All these kind of things. So from that hook, I start to get a sense of the world that I'm going to have to build. Um, other things to note is that within this hook, we also have a sense of the genre. So it's obviously it's a romance, but also it's a mystery. And there are certain world building things that you may sort of find relate to the genre that you have. So for example, the type of mystery I knew I wanted to write, it, um, these mysteries are usually set in small villages. Um, you know, in England or in America or you know, kind of anywhere, although I wanted to set mine in England. So I immediately know that this bookshop is going to be located in a small village and I'm going to have to do some world building around that small village as well. So another example from my own work is, um, uh, so you guys might not know this, but before I started publishing uh, romance books, um, I was publishing kind of um, sort of new weird science fiction um, under my name S.C. Green. Um, and then I'm at some point very soon I'm republishing them under Steph Green, but anyway. So I have a series there called The Engine Ward, which is a science fiction sort of dark steampunk series. And the hook for the series I had was what if dinosaurs had never become extinct? And I knew I wanted to I wanted the series to be steampunk, so I knew I wanted to set it in roughly Victorian you know, in the in the Industrial Revolution. And so originally that was going to be sort of Victorian, but then I, you know, did a bit more research and realised that it was actually going to be um, in the reign of George the uh, Third. But anyway, so this hook was: what if dinosaurs had never become extinct, and the dinosaurs were wandering around during the Industrial Revolution, and that was the start of the idea. But again, you see, that idea has no characters, and it has no conflict. And so I worked on, as I worked on adding those, um, and I kind of knew what the conflict wanted to be, because I knew um, that I wanted this kind of clash of the natural world in the form of the dinosaurs, and the technological world in the form of the Industrial Revolution. So I knew I wanted this clash to happen. And a lot of where the conflict the sense of the conflict in this world came from was actually building the world first based off of this hook that I had. Um, and so that was a really interesting, uh, slightly different way that I built um, that world. And that's often how fantasy and science fiction, speculative fiction authors will, will build, is that they'll, they'll do a bit of the world building first and then from that the characters will emerge and the conflict will emerge. So you may sort of hear me talking about world building and you may be thinking, well, you know, that's all well and good if I am a fantasy author or science fiction author, but I write like small town romances or I write psychological thrillers. So I don't need to do any world building because my stuff is set in the real world. Well, you know, bleh, <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Um, all writers have to do some form of world building. And um, one of the biggest decisions that you'll have to make if you're setting, you know, if you're setting your books in the real world, is are you going to use real locations or are you going to use made-up, invented locations? Now, I do 
obviously paranormal romance. So my uh, so my stories are set in the real world, um, but they do have elements of magic, um, of occultism, kind of that are brought in. Um, but I have to be really focused on that real world setting because that's what grounds the readers um, in the stories. That that's what they you know that's what they come because they like um, they like to see what happens if vampires invade this small town. That's you know that's what they're after. Um, so it's very important to have that real world setting. Now I will usually do made up locations, so invented cities, invented um, villages, um, but I will usually center them on, you know, real world um, places. So, you know, uh, all of my books that are set in England are set in small villages, um, and I actually interrelate the villages, so some uh, some of my books are set in a village called, uh, in a town, sorry, called Crook's Hollow, um, and that is the next uh, shire over from another um, smaller village that I use quite often, um, Argleton. And I've got a few other villages and cities that those books share in common. And some of them are actual places and some of them are made up. And the reason that I do this and the reason that I like made up locations um, so I've recently done a, it's quite a good example, is I've recently written a book um, called My Stolen Life, and this book was originally going to be set in LA, like that is basically the setting, it's set in LA. But the thing is, is that I have never been to LA, and I can do a lot with, you know, I sort of feel like I've got the vibe, you know, I've read a lot of books set in LA, you know, I've got Google Maps, so I could kind of do like a street thing and I could know where things were located. You know, there were lots of descriptions of the different suburbs and things like that online, so I can probably wing it. However, anyone who has been to LA or was born in LA will quickly be able to pull apart aspects of my story. You know, you can't get from there to there on the bus, um, you know, that beach doesn't look like that, that thing doesn't look like that, all these kind of things. And so, you know, LA is quite a popular city, so a lot of people have been there. And so it's much sort of easier from my end to make up a city that's very clearly inspired by LA. And in my books, the city is actually right, like really close to LA, like just on the out, you know, just next to it. Then it is to try and muddle through um, without local knowledge of that city. It actually weirdly makes the world feel more real because I'm able to nail the details without having to nail the details, if that makes any sense. Um, another thing that you can do is if your story world doesn't need to encompass an entire city, so what a lot of people will do was, um, you know, I see this a lot in like urban fantasy, um, is they will do a made-up city, oh sorry, they will do a real city um, with a made-up suburb. Um, and, you know, or a made-up village on the outskirts of a real city. And this is really clever because, it, again, it grounds um, the book in reality, but it gives you the freedom to not get all the details exactly perfectly right in your little made-up corner of the world. 
Um, also, if you're going to use a real city, um, which you know many people do and many people do very well, if you're going to use a real city or a real village, then I would make up, you know, the street where the character lives, or I would make up you know, the, the businesses that they visit, you know, the pub that they go to, you know, but maybe you don't use a real pub. You, you just, you kind of never know what's going to happen. And it's always sort of a little bit easier not to, you know, you know not to base these things on reality because it can come back and bite you in the ass. So we've sort of touched on this a bit already, but um, the key with world building is that you've got to start from that hook and then the the world that's immediately around the protagonist needs to be very vivid however the rest of your world um, can be quite kind of nebulous and blurry um, and so you sort of think of a world building like a pinhole lens of a camera that's pointing at your protagonist so you know the protagonist in the area sort of around their head is going to be really like perfectly in focus and you'll be able to see every single detail and then as you go further out things get more blurry and it doesn't matter because the focal point is always on the protagonist and what's immediately impacting them and what they are immediately impacting. So it's very, very important that no matter where your world is set, whether it's on Mars or whether it's in LA, is that it has to feel real to the reader. And to do this, you need a lot of realness to balance out the suspension of disbelief. And, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of book you're writing, there will be some suspension of disbelief that you're asking readers to go along with you with. Um, and that may just be things like, you know, a murder in this neighbourhood. Um, and, you know, people get murdered every day, it's really terrible, but it happens. Um, but, you know, um, the, the reader who is reading the book has probably never witnessed a murder or had their neighbour murdered in their, their small village. So there's a suspension of disbelief that has to go along with that simply because it's not something they've personally experienced. And so the books need to feel very real, the characters need to feel very real, and the, the setting, the world has to feel real because um, that is where, you know, that's where the reader gets invested in the story. And this is often done in the little details, um, you know, where the world interacts with the characters and the characters interact with the world. So I've recently read a really wonderful book um, called Watching You by Lisa Jewell. So Lisa Jewell is a kind of, I think they call it domestic noirs, so, you know, psychological thrillers. Um, so all her books are sort of usually a, a female protagonist or a series of different protagonists and someone is murdered or there's a kind of a mystery and um, you have to solve you know you have to, to solve the mystery but they're not they're not police procedurals um, think of more kind of in the vein of like Gone Girl and the, the Girl on the Train those kind of books so Lisa Jewell writes those books and she writes them very very well and what she does that's really fascinating is the way that she uses very small details to build these really believable worlds. So all of her books are set in small geographical areas within, so, so usually so made up, so usually made up towns or made up locations in large cities like London or on the outskirts of London, um, 
you know, or sometimes sort of like made up places quite far away, but they're, they're always an invented place, but it's always a very small location. Um, so watching me was set in this, this small village, um, doesn't seem to be too far from London, I think it's called Melville, Melville or On something, because it's in England, so they always have silly names. So Melville On or something rather was the village name. And, you know, we didn't need to know, so we knew very little, actually, when you, when you look back and think about it, we know very little about this village. You know, we don't know how big it is, we don't know, you know, um, how it was invented, we don't know anything about the history of it, we don't know, you know, what colour the church on the hill is, we know nothing like that. But what we do know is about this row of painted houses, um, at the top of a hill that overlook the village. We know all about these houses and we know about kind of what they look like, um, very expertly drawn with just a few simple lines of description. We know about these painted houses um, and we know about the walk down the hill, we know about the local pub, um, we know that there is a couple of uh, local schools, you know, there's a, there's a local public school, um, there's a local comprehensive, so we know, you know a few little details like this. Um, but these details are drawn in such vivid realness, um, and they're so well articulated in the geography, um, that this place, Melville, feels very real to us. She's a very good example, and she does this in all her books. It's really fascinating to, to kind of see. So if you're writing speculative fiction, so that's science fiction, fantasy, horror, etc., anything with that kind of otherworldly details, um, first of all, you begin with the rules that you want to change. So what is different about this world from the world that we live in? Um, and what are the actions or the outcomes or the consequences of these new rules? So when I talk about rules, these can be rules of nature, which, for example, govern how magic works or change the way, you know, the way we're able to how faster than light um, flight and things like that. Um, or these could be rules of law, for, so, for example, the, the mythology, the religion, um, or they could be rules of law. Um, such as the, you know, the governing rules of the land. And so when we're thinking about outcomes and consequences, we're thinking about what are the rules, um, you know, the, like the rules of law, and what are the consequences for breaking those rules. So very often in fantasy books, there are rules about who can use magic and who can't use magic, or who is given magic and who is not given magic or who's allowed to train in magic, or who, and who isn't. And so that's an example of the rules. Um, and whenever you, basically whenever you set a rule like this in fantasy, you are, um, you are setting in motion a story where your protagonist um, either sets out deliberately or accidentally to break these rules. It's kind of like a Chekhov's gun uh, principle. Um, in world building is that you know, if you set some rules, <laughs> you're going to be breaking those rules in some way. Now obviously you can't break like rules of physics that you've created, although sometimes people do. But you know, think about that, think about the rules that you create in terms of how are your characters going to be breaking those rules and what are the consequences for them for breaking those rules. If it is a rule of law, or a rule of law in particular, um, think about why 
the world that you've built has those rules in place you know what's the catalyst for having those rules so usually in epic fantasy because your protagonist is usually breaking these rules they're usually digging very deep into the why things are the way they are in the first place because often what they're doing is breaking down a world and rebuilding it um, and so, you know, if the protagonist needs to know why, then you're going to need to know why because eventually you're going to have to tell people. So, there's that. Now, some aspects of world building um, come about because of genre. We've kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, so, you know, so obviously, like, the world that you're going to build for a cosy mystery is going to be very different. It's going to feel very different from the world in a dystopian book. Although, you know, so, like, if I were to read a dystopian cosy mystery, that would be, uh, no, actually, I would love to read a dystopian cosy mystery. Um, I don't recommend you do that, um, but if you do, call me because I would love to <laughs> love to read that. Uh, but don't do that because I'm not a typical reader. But a dystopian cozy mystery would be awesome. Um, so bad example. <laughs> but don't do that. Um, so you know, another thing to think about here is um, you know trying not to make your worlds too derivative of what's already been done in your genre. Like so, you know, so cozy mysteries they need to be obviously set in quite small, um, you know, small villages, um, and you know, with a typical small English village or a small um, northwestern uh, American village. But you know, a lot of people are finding a lot of success in cozies with slightly different settings. Um, you know, so there's a, a couple authors I know who do really great cozy um, series set in New Zealand, set in Australia, set in small towns in Europe. Um, so you know, there's a lot of scope there to kind of move away from um, you know what's quite typical. Um, some uh, I read a, a cozy series a little while ago set in the typical American village um, although it was a witch cozy series and the village kind of had this shtick where they were like Halloween 100% of the time all the time Halloween decorations like Halloween themes and, and this this witch who was like a real witch was always getting really annoyed at all this nonsense that was going on um, and so it was it was a really great way for the author to just take that like typical thing that readers would expect and then give it this extra twist um so with like epic fantasy this is um happening a lot in the genre now you know obviously epic fantasy is kind of famous for having like this eurocentric generic middle ages um sort of second world setting um but if you look at the books that are doing very well and the books that people are talking about in epic fantasy um people are reaching for many many different types of inspiration for these second worlds now so you know the very big books which are based on um, mythology and the history of different regions of Asia you know China um, Japan um, Hong Kong all those different places um, you know there's a lot of um, focus on seeing a lot more um, work inspired by Russia, um, inspired by Eastern Europe, um, even, you know, the Middle East, um, Africa, Marlon James's, obviously, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, um, tons and tons of other fantasy books coming out of, of, of those areas now, focusing more on, you know, kind of subverting that very Eurocentric um, trend, which has been, you know, 
stock standard in epic fantasy for forever. So with world building, um, you know, as we've talked about, you basically start with the things that immediately impact the character um, and immediately address the conflict in your hook. And there's all sorts of different parts of world building and you know some of it you will need to do the, the, the big sweeping things you know so the the rules um etc um and the establishment of um what happens in the main conflict um you're going to need to work those out basically before you start writing or as you're writing your first few scenes because they're going to immediately impact everything um, and what those things are is going to vary so much depending on the story that you have. So common things that you're going to have to build as part of your world are weather patterns, um, are laws, um, are structures of governing bodies, um, are the environment, and you know, Again, we're not just talking about um, fantasy books here, but you know, if you were writing um, in a you know small village setting or real world setting, and you want that world to feel realistic, um, then knowing about the environment and what kind of plants and trees and animals and things like that your character will encounter is just one of those beautiful details that helps it feel very real. Um, so geography, um, I always, you know, when I do my little small villages, I usually will have a, a really shitty looking map that I've drawn, which just says, you know, here's the bookshop, here's the shop that's next to the bookshop, here's, you know, where they have to walk to get to the village green, just so that I get those details right across the series. It helps it feel more real. So geography, transportation, um, this is often important in you know, uh, Lisa Jewell, her books that I talked about. So in the book Watching You, um, the bus is a very important aspect um, of the book. So she knows um, where the bus stop is in relation to these painted houses. It's all very, it's very well done. So transportation, um, culture. So remember um, trying not to have like static cultures that never change or monocultures because you know, that's not realistic, a very common mistake to make in fantasy. Um, religion, languages, important events in history, um, and, and just how all these things impact the development of the character um, and their story arc. World building is a very good um, resource to pull from for conflict in your story. So look at the elements in your world that you've already created or that you're looking to create and, and think about how they can lead to macro or micro conflicts. So micro conflicts might be like neighbors arguing or you know macro conflicts are like you know two separate cultures at war. Um, and, and how the results of um, past conflicts that aren't necessarily in the story um, have their impact and leave their marks upon the people left behind. So there's a really good example of this, a very extreme example, um, which is a book named by China Mayville called The City in the City. It's one of my favourite books by her, my, one of my favourite authors ever. And in this book, um, there is a city, a, a, an invented city, um, but China is exceptionally good at creating these these really strange invented cities that feel very realistic. And he does that again through these small details. Anyway, so this invented city. And this city, at some point in its past, had um, a, 
basically a, a battle, a fight, um, between two different factions in the city. And as a result of this, this conflict within the city, the city is divided into two. Um, and that they are two separate states. And so if you want to go from one city to the other city, you have to you know, get a border pass and you have to cross um, this kind of this building in the middle of the city, which is like the, the border room. And so you actually just walk across a room and then you're in the other, the, the other end of the city. Um, but the thing is, is that this ge geographical line that defines the city is not like directly down the middle. It's not like there's a neighbourhood for one side of the city and a neighbourhood for the other side of the city. The, 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 because of how cities work, the whole thing is piled on top of each other. So the characters have to practice this thing called unseeing, where they walk down the street and they pretend not to see the parts of the city that are not in their side of the city. And it is stunning piece of fantasy writing. It's exceptional. And the whole conflict of the book is about the main character trying to solve a murder mystery in the city opposite, that's not his city, in the other city. And it was a mystery, it was a murder that he was not supposed to see because he was supposed to be practicing this unseen. Um, and it's a very extreme example of how, you know, how conflict can arise from the, the world building. I really like to think of the worlds that I build as characters in the stories. Um, and, and because of this, it means that your world needs a context, it needs a why. We've kind of talked about this already. Um, it, worlds often effectively need an arc of their own, like a character arc. Um, so, you know, they, they change um, because they're influenced by the cast of characters that are wandering around making changes. Um, but also, their changes influence the characters along the way as well so it, so it kind of works both ways so the world pushes back the world can grow um, and adapt or the world can can wither and die um, this was a big theme in Lord of the Rings um, you know obviously the whole story is about Frodo and Sam trying to save the Shire um, and preserve you know preserve what the hobbits had and they went on this whole big adventure and they saved the world and they came home and they realized that the, the Shire wasn't, you know, it wasn't immune um, to the sickness that had been part of the land. And they had to, you know, they had, they had to keep going, they had to keep striving. And Sam was able to do that, but Frodo, Frodo was not. So, yeah, big theme in Lord of the Rings. And, you know, very interesting thing for you to think about as you're building your world. So what are some of the common pitfalls that people encounter when they're, they're, you know, when they're building worlds? Um, the biggest one is probably static worlds, um, which is very common in epic fantasy or just sort of any fantasy books, um, where the world has kind of, you, you build a world, but you don't build any kind of growth or shrinking or changes in that world. So basically the world has been the same for millennia. And that's just not how worlds work. Um, it, it's more interesting to think about your world as a snapshot of, you know, a place in flux. Um, and so, you know, things are never, you know, have never been the same and they will never be the same again. Um, and similar to this, monocultures is a, is a pretty sort of pitfall that you see quite often. Um, it's very similar to static worlds. Um, this is just groups of people who all think the same thing, they all worship the same god, you know, and this is not real. 
in you know in a city um it, even you know a city in history not everyone worships the same god not everyone has the same skin color you know not everyone is the same um you know you always have um different cultures mixing um and different types of people have come from different places you always have travelers um you know you would have to be very 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 isolated to have a monoculture and it's very rare to be that isolated um and it should be a point in your story if that's going to be the point so trying to avoid monocultures and then sort of the last really common pitfall, you know, is kind of two sides of the same coin, is you either do too much world building, which is just where you get so distracted by coming up with, you know, great creatures, you know, and, you know, rules for fantasy and planning out the whole history of your magical school that you don't write the book. And then the other side of that is not enough world building, where you start the book um, and you maybe have a vague sense of things, but because you haven't grounded the world in the sense of, you know, very, uh, very structured um, rules or anything like that, then you're constantly breaking your own rules. Maybe you're not, you know, because you don't really know anything about this magical school that you've sent your characters to, you're not describing the school in a way that makes it feel real to the characters. Um, you know, maybe you haven't got the geography of your village sorted out, and so it doesn't feel like a real village because people aren't interacting because you aren't thinking about things like, you know, people having conversations at the bus stop, or where do they get their groceries from, or um, things like that. So, um, so how much world building is too much world building, or not enough? How much is the right amount? Well, this unfortunately really depends on you as a writer, um, and you know, knowing your own strengths and knowing your own weaknesses. But it should always come back to you need enough to keep going, you need enough to build that conflict in the story, you need enough to focus on what's going on around the character. So thinking about your world building as, as through the lens of a pinhole camera. So you are building strong, a strong world immediately around the character that they can influence, and then outside of that, it can be a bit dark and nebulous and, you know, not very well formed. So that is really all the advice that I have for you right now about world building. I hope you found this really interesting. Um, and I'm just letting you know now that I am very close to releasing a brand new cool thing, which is going to help you plot a book in 10 days. Um, and alongside that um, is going to be a brand new plotting, outlining, world building, super exciting course that I'm um, putting together. I'm really, really excited about this. I think you guys are going to love it. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Um, and I'm, you're going to be hearing a lot more about it from me very soon. But if you want to make sure that you don't miss a thing about the, the upcoming course, about the upcoming How to Plot a Book in 10 Days, then head over to the Rage Against the Manuscript website. Obviously, www.rageagainstthemanuscript.com. Sign up for the mailing list or pop over to the Rage Against the Manuscript Facebook group and make sure you are checking that out. That's all from me this week. I hope you've enjoyed this little chat about world building. Happy writing!